0: What you're about to listen to is an interview with Brad St. who did his PhD dissertation on the Battle of Hong Kong. He also runs the YouTube channel OTD, Canadian Military History, which covers Canada's military history past. So please, check out his work and show him some love and support by subscribing and liking some of his videos. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week and I'm your dutiful host Craig Watson before we can even begin, I need to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the Battle of Hong Kong? Well Kings and Generals just happens to have an entire episode dedicated to it, showcasing every moment of the battle. Please go check it out. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon. Dot com slash kings and generals hey if after all that you are still hungry for some history content why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the pacific war channel at youtube where i also happen to have a episode on the battle of hong kong where i talk a bit about the guerrilla warfare and the occupational years give it a look it would mean a lot to me Hello there. this is the pacific war podcast week by week in association with kings and generals and i am joined by my fellow guest here if you'd like to introduce yourself
1: oh hey, hey craig thanks for having me on my name is brad Sanqua. i hold a phd in history from the university of ottawa i did my dissertation on the battle of hong kong uh and which we'll be talking about today uh and myths surrounding the battle what place the battle has in canadian identity and memory uh and all these things connected to it, so not just the fighting itself, but before and after, which we'll talk about today. Uh, I also run a YouTube channel uh, called On the Day in Canadian Military History, or OTD, Canadian Military History. Uh, and a Twitter account with the exact same name, uh, where I just cover all kinds of military Canadian military history topics, generally from prehistory through pretty much today. So I gotta cover as much as I can and uh, get the story of Canada's military past out there.
0: Awesome. And for all those who just heard, please go subscribe and watch some of his videos on YouTube and uh, catch him on Twitter, where he frequently talks with, uh, well, a fellow colleague of ours at the Cold War channel, Dave. <laughs> yeah, And uh, well, I guess the best place to start off uh, for everybody is Battle of Hong Kong. Why did this battle even occur in the first place?
1: Yeah, so obviously there's two sides to this battle. Um, I can start with the, the Japanese um intentions, right? Because in late 1941, uh, they wanted to basically launch war against Britain and the United States, trying to get uh, catch them off guard, more or less, you know, before they could really strengthen and, and attack back. Uh, so Hong Kong is actually quite further north than where the majority of the attacks were going to come in uh, what was then British uh, Malaya and the Dutch East Indies uh, and the Philippines, the American colony at the time. Uh, so Hong Kong was basically attacked because it would have been, you know, kind of a thorn in the side behind the lines of communication, which as a, a military, you don't want, you don't want your enemy having any sort of bastion behind you. Uh, and also because Japan had been in war in China, off and on for quite a while, which you guys have covered very, very well. Um, oh, yes. They, they were in a position to do so. Uh, so they dedicated a... Uh, an enlarged division uh, to the attack, um, along with some army-level assets, uh, including artillery and air support. Uh, so that's basically why the Japanese wanted to do: is get the thorn on the side, get it before it becomes a problem, get it out of the way. Uh, so from the British side, the, it had been a British colony uh, since eighteen, since technically eighteen forty-one, but a little bit earlier. Um, it had been coming up to its hundredth anniversary. Well, when the attack uh, that year was the 100th anniversary, excuse me. Um, I didn't even
0: think of that. Yeah, it's true.
1: Yeah. So it was something that, you know, obviously got a little overshadowed uh, by the war uh, that was launched in East Asia. So that's one of the But why that's important is because Hong Kong had this prestige connected to it, this imperial prestige that the British have been there for a very long time. uh, And you can't just abandon said colony, which there was calls for for an extended period of time. Um, going on for decades, if war with Japan or any other enemy in East Asia uh, was, was to take place. They were to, some wanted to just outright militarily abandon the colony, some wanted a token force uh, that would just put up some limited resistance and surrender, again, to kind of keep that prestige in line as best as possible. Uh, and then others wanted to full up defend this as best as possible. Uh, So this goes on and on, off and on for quite a long time. It's not a snap decision. Uh, That's kind of one of the myths I tackled uh, that I talked about earlier with the dissertation.
0: I have to admit, anytime I ever read about this, it was always proclaimed as a snap decision because at first they were saying, (laughs) okay, we're not going to put any real assets there. Then it's kind of a last minute. Oh, let's put some token symbolically to put in it. That's how it was always taught to uh, me in lectures, especially.
1: Yeah, well, uh, no, no. no ill will or words towards whoever those were teaching you that, but that, <laughs> I think it, that's not the case. Uh, again, this is all fairly uh, new work in that sense that very few people know about the extent of this. Uh, it went on for a very long time. Um, and it wasn't just something that was 1941. It's not something that was just even limited to the Second World War. This is going on in the 20s um, and even well before, About what do we do here, right? Uh, we can talk about some of the more... Uh, Details of that in a second about what that actually looked like, but there was lots of calls from the commander on the ground, and those change periodically. Uh, But the one that's most important, I guess, for our purposes today, uh, was the Canadian-born, which is another interesting layer to this story. uh, Brigadier General uh, Edward Edward, sorry, Arthur Edward uh, Gresset. He was in command of Hong Kong from mid 1938 until the summer of 41. Uh, Canadian-born, like I said, went to the Royal Military College in Kingston, classmate of uh, Harry Crear's, who was you know, a big Canadian figure in the Second World War, uh, commanding the First Canadian Army, and also being uh, in charge of the Canadian Army generally overall at the beginning of the war. Uh, so they were frequently contacting each other um, over the years. They, they, they knew each other and maintained contact. Not that I wasn't too sure about at the beginning of the research, which I found a little bit was really interesting. They weren't like Buddy, buddy, by any means, but they were kept in touch. Uh, so that's an interesting element. So when Gresset um, is is relieved in command by Maltby, uh, who's the commander during the battle, Gresset goes through Canada to get back to Britain. It's the easiest and fastest way, right? Because Canada and Britain obviously have very strong links. It's the easiest way to get back. So, so that was the kind of the tradition. Those who were uh, retired, as they said, of command of Hong Kong would go through Canada. Uh, so Grecia does the same. Uh, he stops in Ottawa and, and meets with Krihar, uh, who, again, is kind of sketchy, doesn't really ever say exactly what happens. I can find no details of said meetings that these two have. Um, JL Ralston, who's defense minister, is also part of them. He tries to hide his involvement later on. Uh, he kept a date book, uh, which includes all kinds of minute details of lunches with community groups, all these things, blah, 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 whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Except for dates where I think he met with Gresset and Criar, they're blank. They're the only days that are blank. Even weekends are like day off or weekend. They're just blank. So it was really, really weird uh, that he did that. Uh, Anyway, so both all these men claim that Canadians reinforcing Hong Kong was never discussed. I don't buy that for five seconds, Uh, (laughs) just based on what happens next. Uh, Gresset goes back to England, uh, meets uh, with the chief of staff um, and uh, says, hey, Canada will send reinforcements to Hong Kong if we ask. You just got to ask. And then they do. And again, it's just not a demand. Never was a demand. They asked for two battalions initially. Uh, Canada says yes. After a very short period of negotiation, I mean, really, really short period of negotiation, like strangely short. Um, as an example I like to give is that its decision to send Canadian troops to Iceland was discussed, I think three times more than to send troops to Hong Kong.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Again, I I don't consider myself any kind of conspiracy theorist in any way, shape or form. It's just some details in the story are just like, what's going on here? (laughs) This doesn't make sense. Things are missing. Things were literally hidden. I mean, uh, Mackenzie King, prime minister at the time, kept a diary of everything he ever did, pretty much in his adult life. Uh, those the days surrounding said decision were locked in a cupboard in his closet and was found after his death. That's weird, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, that is that, weird. That's hmm. a little weird. So anyway, so aggressive asks, they send the request through you know the, you know, the imperial channels and it just discusses it. What's the cabinet for a few days? they give the okay, and then that gets moving. So we can probably come back to that. But that's kind of, I use that, it's a very good administrative example because going back a little bit, Preset, who had been there since 38, he was pushing for more troops in any shape or form since he started. He wanted as many as they would let him have, and they would never give it to him. Ever. Like, he asked for troops, he asked for planes, he asked for anything. And his, uh, Ally, kind of, I guess you could say, in this whole Hong Kong reinforcement sort of saga. Uh, Brooke Popham, who I know you've talked about on the channel before in command overall in the, in the, in the Far East at this time, he's on board with this. He wants mm. more. He wants a naval contribution. Um, Brooke Popham, being from the Royal Air Force, wants a bigger uh, air complement. He's even willing to try and play, you know, trying to bluff the Japanese at this point. He wants them to send empty crates that are used to ship fighter jets, or fighter planes, sorry, not jets, yeah. to Hong Kong to trick the Japanese because they are very close, right? And they they dominate the airspace and the naval in the one and, and the land, sorry, the naval space as well, so they can keep up with what's going on. He thinks they can bluff strength. And again, he's. Um, and it's rebuffed multiple multiple times i've read the letters and why i again harp that is because after he makes this request when he's once sorry once breasted is back in britain there's some you know chatter at the lower levels and in, in the war office as these things tend to happen and, and someone at a lower level goes why did he never ask before <laughs> god it's just yeah. like He did multiple times to as many people as he could. He was going outside chains of command. He was trying to find allies all across, you know, the British military as much as he could. And it just fell on deaf ears. So that's why you kind of have this Canadian contribution, which it wasn't perceived to be a token force. That was not the idea in any shape or form. That was never discussed as what the plan was. They wanted to imagine
0: it wouldn't be discussed openly. Yeah,
1: no, but you know, like, how do I say this? For those who maybe don't know this kind of, menu A level detail of these decisions that are bigger, like especially British files, which are so fascinating to me, is there's handwritten notes all over this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you the archive in, in, in Q and you can see like people have just scrawled notes <laughs> on these files and these kinds of things are being discussed. And again, not in that language, but it's just like, you know, you're just writing letters back and forth to each other. And there are, these things are brought up and talked about. It's not just these official higher ups that always get the focus with Hong Kong. There's a lot of lower level things going on that get completely lost in how the story is traditionally told. So I think that's a, getting back to what you asked, why Hong Kong is defended is for that reason. You have this imperial prestige. Hong Kong is also a financial center. You can't just abandon that. Um, it became a, I guess you guys have talked about, you know, financial center because of opium, (laughs) it had largely moved at this point uh, from the opium trade, which is still ongoing uh, again. Uh, But also it was important, and this is a very smaller area and one I'd like to get into possibly in the future, but it's real connection to the nationalist Chinese government. Um, they are Because
0: it was a leak of materials could go through Hong Kong and potentially get there until the Japanese completely surrounded it, mind you. But yeah,
1: they did. They didn't get supplies actually. Well, that's why it's very interesting because... It's another layer that I don't, I've done some digging in, but not as much as I like. Also, because I don't have access to those records or speak the language, unfortunately. But there's all kinds of odd things going on in Hong Kong for the attack. And I mean, talking about the nationalist China, still there's whispers and hand scrawled notes and all kinds of weird things going on. Questions of what they're actually doing in Hong Kong. They're they're officially, you know, to have relations, you know, because they have relations with Britain uh, officially, diplomatically. Also, because of the weapons trade that is coming through Hong Kong, it's getting out in drips and drabs. You're right; there's not much getting out. It's it's a symbolic importance. Yeah, but there's other questions of what they're actually doing there. <laughs> are they trying to undermine British rule? Following what comes, and we can talk about this in the battle part. Maybe, uh, what do they do? The criminal gangs that have traditionally been in Hong Kong, pretty much since its beginning.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, well, we can actually move on to uh, yeah. the beat of it—the uh, battle itself of Hong Kong, which is uh, a bit of a nightmare, I would imagine, to kind of describe it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's simplistic and difficult both at the same time, if that makes any sense. Uh, because I, it, it's a two-phase battle, right? Because you have the fighting on the mainland, because there's a whole chunk of the Hong Kong colony.
0: Oh, you know, for the audience, actually, I thought of this myself, the geography to explain, you know, the Kowloon Peninsula, yeah. the new territories, and then the actual island of Hong Kong are really yeah, exactly. completely different things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They are all part of the same colony um, had come in at different parts, different conflicts, that kind of thing, but developed. But by 1941, they're all part of Hong Kong. So, yeah, you have the mainland, uh, which is called the New Territories, which borders uh, Japanese occupied China. A little bit of standoff had been going on in that area for around three years after uh, Canton, as it's called at the time, by Westerners, was occupied. Uh, So a bit of a kind of weird sort of standoff, kind of friendly, but not really, but no real fighting, but kind of awkwardness, kind of best way to say it. Uh, So that's the new territories, like you said, the Peninsula, the major part of the colony, and then the island. So the fighting starts on the 8th. Um, Again, we got the time zone craziness here with Pearl Harbor. It's technically the 8th. It takes place a few hours after Pearl Harbor. So they are not really aware of what had happened. Uh, but again, on the ground in Hong Kong, mm. basically doesn't matter, uh, especially because the speed of the Japanese attack. So oh, yeah. their token force is kept on the mainland uh, north of what, and I'll talk about now, is called the Gin Drinkers line. It is a defensive line that had been never finished, I should say. It had been started, again, dribs and drabs, just like everything with Hong Kong is dribs and drabs. Uh, ad hoc last minute too you know, too little, too late kind of thing. actually literally wrote that in the dissertation multiple times. Like <laughs> example of too little, too late. I think I wrote that like four times uh, for various things. Uh, so anyway, the gin drinkers line is this. It's often compared to the marginal line, which is not a fair comparison because it's, it's not the same idea. Um, again, that's the problem. It's no one really knows what they're supposed to do with this. They want a defensive line, who's in command, a number of troops available, they don't know. They don't know what it can do, right? It's, it's defensive positions that are you know concrete positions. A lot of them are disguised to look like homes.
0: Uh, yeah, you in- can go today to uh, there's actually yeah. parks. You can walk around and see some of the pillboxes are still there. I think.
1: Oh yeah. Quite a few actually. Um, and uh, well, it's, it's interesting because it's been turned into a walking trail now mm-hmm. for, uh, that you walk along and, and you can, See, like that's often mis—that's often misidentified as the gin drinkers line. Is this some sort of First World War visible trench line? And everyone goes, "Just a walking path in the hills. It's not a defensive line." Also, why would a bright white stone be a defensive line that makes zero? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was mistakes made, but they weren't that stupid. Uh, anyway, so that 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 gets. Uh, Again, complicated in this, it's like, how do you defend it? What do you defend it with? Do you hold it as a token force, et cetera, et cetera? So once uh, the Canadians arrive, they get there three weeks, two and a half weeks before the battle. I think they get there officially on the 19th of November. So they're not very long. Uh, The plan has changed. Initially, the plan was complete token force on the mainland. Slow them down, blow bridges, make their lives difficult. Malpi changes his mind once Hmm. Canadians arrive. They send three battalions, which were initially integrated into the defense of the island, to hold the mainland as long as possible. Long story short, doesn't work. Uh, again, they send this token force, uh, mostly from the uh, Indian Army. Uh, it was the Rajputs units and, and um, some of the Punjab units as well. Uh, we have the Five Seventh 7th Rajputs and the Two Fourteenth. 14th jobs if I'm doing that. I've got maps here, but they're on, on there. So I've got those numbers right. Um, yeah. anyway, so they're they're sending like companies and platoons to you know accompany the engineers, slow the advance, which the Japanese come just completely ignore. Literally there's an account of them destroying a bridge and they can see the Japanese building their own. <laughs> so they're like, this huh. is gonna go well. <laughs> yeah. So that goes on for less than a day, day and a bit very ineffective. They fall back to the ginger's line. Which again, there's estimates it can hold out for two weeks, eight, who knows? We'll find out. There has been estimates you need an entire division to hold it. They use two battalions. The Second Royal Scots are given the main position in the West, which is known as the saint Redoubt. It's still there. Um, I don't know if it has protected status or not. It is still there. Uh, you can go it's supposed to be the strong point. This is the pivot of the line. This falls, the line goes. It falls in less than a day. Yeah, it falls so quick and almost by accident. Accident's not quite the right word, but it, it, it's attacked by a Japanese unit who's outside their boundary, the regimental boundary. They ca- they ca- they basically capture it by surprise. They night attack, get through the wire very easily, almost like walking through it almost. It's not manned properly. And they catch them off guard and they take the position almost with taking hard. I don't think they take any casualties, hardly any at all, where the Royal Scots take quite a few number. But what's interesting is going back to the divisional command, the 38th divisional command, they tell them to retreat. That is outside your regimental border. You are not supposed to attack that area. And they go, okay, (laughs) we have the main position. They know that this is the main position. Again, the British military security, uh, I'll talk about that now real quick, is very lax. There are all kinds of things going on Japanese and people they've paid to spy for months, some say even years on these positions in the town, outside the town, everything. Like oh. the Japanese have eyes on the ground. Uh, and that comes more up in the island battle. but. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an interesting part because they know pretty much everything is or what the important points are, where they need to go very quickly. Uh, and the Mon readout is a big part of that. Uh, so eventually that order is canceled and they say, yeah, okay, we took it. We're going to hold it. <laughs> and we're going to keep it. And then they just push through the line. And then a general retreat to Lun is ordered on the uh, 9th or the 10th. I think early on the 10th. Uh, and then that's quickly countermanded to the next day to a full retreat to the, to the island on the 11th of December. Uh, there had been some initial talks of, do we, you know, do we delay them? Do we put a force out to distract them? Again, it's all over the place. A major problem with this battle is as standard procedure. If you're about to be captured by the enemy, you destroy everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Maps, uh, communications, orders, everything. So that was a particularly frustrating part of my research. Is there's nothing that survives. Hardly any little things, like stuff the communications I got out, but nothing on the ground from the actual fighting. Everything's done later, which causes all kinds of problems, which we can get to. But for historical inquiry and identity, and even political fighting for decades. Uh, anyway, so that oh, that's yeah, yeah. so it's uh, it's. Confusing. This is why this is just the mainland part. And it's so confusing what's going on because there's no records, right? Uh, So anyway, so the retreat is ordered. It's actually quite orderly. Um, They didn't practice it in any way, shape, or form, but it's actually done very, very well, which is another surprising part of this because you think it would be this rush and crush of people to try and get off the mainland.
0: Absolute catastrophe. Refugees fleeing with the soldiers. Yeah, chaos.
1: It's not. From the military standpoint, it's not. They aban- they effectively abandon the civilians, which is horrific. Uh, what goes on and, and once they've retreated militarily, it's actually quite an effective retreat. Um, but for the civilians, it's 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 awful because once the last troops are off it, off the mainland, it's it's just it's like a miniature almost Dan King in the sense. Yeah. Because the, the the troops on the ma- on the island can hear and see fires, the the gunfire, and they know there's nobody left, so they're killing civilians and everything that the Japanese army does. And they're going to do that again. Uh, so, uh, so the Japanese are firmly established on the mainland. Um, uh, they start shelling, you know, pot shots, all that fun stuff. They send, uh, an envoy asking for surrender. It's rejected. So the shelling really begins the shelling program.
0: Really, yeah, st- really light them up.
1: <laughs> big time. Uh, and, and this is, uh, something I like to talk about with this is, uh, where, where, what again, I've been challenged, and that's perfectly acceptable academically, is the role of what's called fifth column this at the time. What role they have in this, um, particularly the artillery program, is where they come up quite a bit uh, because there's all kinds of accusations across all kinds of units written at all different times. Like I said, the records are destroyed of targets being lit up literally, like people walking next to a gun holding up a flare. Really? And then all of a sudden a shell good. comes down. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and this is before the landing is on the island even taken place. This goes on for days and days and days. Any defensive structures on the island are pummeled from the air, artillery. Uh, the Japanese try to send send one more envoy. They can take some captured civilians, put them on it to try and intimidate or be like talk yeah. them fighting. I guess that fails. Um, it doesn't happen, and then the Japanese send a very small token force again. I can't really. F- Find why it was sent. Maybe somebody just got lost. I don't know. A small force that tries to land on the island without the major coordinated attack and just gets repulsed. It's very it's a couple boats, but the Canadians light them up <laughs> pretty badly. Uh, but that's not repeated, unfortunately, for the garrison when the landing does take place on the 17th. They cross what's known as the Mylan Passage, short, short, short little passage on the eastern side of the island with the mainland, not near Kuala on the other side. Um, it's, it's a haphazard attack. They are literally stealing as many boats as they can. They have a naval presence, but it's barely, not, barely used. They have some assault boats. There's guys swimming. Like, it's, it's, it's a very ad hoc, strangely planned attack, but because they have such... Sorry, when I say they, I mean the Japanese, of course, have such good intelligence and such well-trained troops, they overcome these kind of obstacles that they put in their own way. They cross fairly easily. I mean, there's a little bit of artillery fire. There's some machine gun posts, but they've been basically destroyed. So once the landing is enforced, they fall back. Um, Canadians are not involved yet. Uh, they are brought forward at this point and are trying to hold what's the Mylun Barracks, which is an old army, old Chinese fort from I'm not even sure how long ago. It's been there for 100 years, turned into a barracks by the British. Um, They try to hold that, they can't. Um, They they think there's some fifth column activity going on there. People showing up all of a sudden wearing civilian clothes, and now they're getting grenades lobbed at them. That's a constant thread throughout the fighting on the battle, oh, sorry, on the island. Uh, And they get pushed back from there. Uh, And uh, and if you include a map, you can see why that's so important. Because Mm. once that is taken, you can just flood in. And, And that's what they do, the Japanese. They just flood in. Very, very quickly, especially when daylight has come up because the artillery has smashed as many positions as they could. There is no air force. They had a. There was no air force before the battle began, right? For the British garrison, it was destroyed as soon as the battle began. They had four planes, five obsolete old seaplanes basically yeah. wiped out, would have done very little anyway. Um, in terms of combat, they were more for reconnaissance. Anyway, which they never did. <laughs> they weren't setting up reconnaissance flights before they attacked. Anyway, so they're destroyed. So with that said, the Japanese basically have control and can do basically whatever they want. So the the passage in the, in the plumbing bay, the harbor, is basically a Japanese lake at this point, right? They can do whatever they want in it. So they cross all kinds of troops, and they just keep pouring, pouring, pouring in. So that leads to fighting. Um, and the name has changed uh, again, because names is in Hong Kong have. Gone back and forth a lot, <laughs> especially in the latest political developments there in the, in, the, in Hong Kong. Uh, so, the Myland Passage, as it's known, oh, sorry, not the Myland Passage, the Long Nichong Gap. I think it's Ni Che Gap now. Uh, it's changed.
0: Uh, it,
1: okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's a letter change in English. Uh, <laughs> again, I'm not sure what it is in Cantonese, but uh, unfortunately, I don't speak the language, which I did, but I don't. Uh, it, anyway, it's the pivot point, again, of the island, just like the the Redoubt is the pivot point of the Gin Line. This is the pivot point of the island. It's literally where, still today, huge roads come together. It's it's the center of the island.
0: So many men are going to die trying to retake it. Oh my God. Yeah, it's
1: it, it, it's brutal fighting um, because uh, once the retreat from the British garrison to the island takes place, the island is split into two commands. Again, this is all had, uh, ad hoc, being decided. As this is going on, this is not well-planned. This is not well-carried out, not even well-thought-out, to be honest. Um,
0: well, I think when, when I covered this episode, I had uh, a lot to say about Maltby. That's for sure. His command.
1: <laughs> he makes a lot of mistakes. Maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> you can ask me about that after. after. Uh, but for events, yeah, I, I try to just... When I do the events, I try to, to judge. <laughs> judge. Uh, is It's so sorry. The command is split. Into two West Brigade under the command of J.K. Lawson, who was the highest ranking Canadian in the colony, command of the Canadian Forces, uh, a a soldier from the First World War, a British immigrant, like so many Canadians of the First World War, um, learned his craft there, stayed in the permanent army or the non, or sorry, the permanent militia, active militia. It changes its name 17 times, feels like (laughs) what the Canadian is actually called. Uh, anyway, so he stays in it through the interwar years and in it's very lean years, learns his trade actually in British India at Quetta, which is now in Pakistan. So he gets to know the British Army, British Indian Army quite, quite well, uh, which Moppy comes from, right? And so does a good chunk of the British commanders and troops in Hong Kong. So that's why, they, again, they think he was selected. But again, no paperwork anywhere on any of this. These are all speculations. Uh, anyway, he's giving control of the west side of the island. He puts his headquarters At the gap. Good decision, but also the Japanese know that this is the pivot point. Yeah. They basically beeline for the gap uh, and the headquarters is surrounded very, very quickly. Um, It's supported by numerous troops from the the garrison, but there's a company D company of uh, Winnipeg Grenadiers is across the street and down the hill. Hong Kong's all hills. (laughs) So everything's either up
0: a hill or down a hill pretty much. Uh, it's very confusing when you're trying to say it in a verbal podcast going up the hill down the hill and where they are.
1: Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's hard to yeah, to uh to do that and understand it until you see it. Like these are, like that's a, a common um, phrase in military history, right? You have to know the ground. You have to know the ground. Yeah. This is 100% true. If you don't understand, like even the most basic map of Hong Kong with an elevation on it, like a lot of the official histories do have on them and there are amazing maps in there, especially the Canadian Army official history is amazing maps in it. You can't understand what's going on here. Like, why would they do this? Right? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, until you look at it and go, it's exactly what you should do. <laughs> this is on you know, Monday morning quarterbacking by any means. This is just like, this is literally what the island is giving you. So you have to take it. Uh, so anyway, uh, Lawson's command becomes quickly surrounded, same with D Company of the Grenadiers. Uh, Lawson's completely surrounded. He's still in communication with, with Maltby uh, at this point uh, until he realizes he's completely surrounded and there's nothing he can do. He And again, this is, comes from Maltby. Uh, it's been confirmed by a few other people, some of the details, uh, but Maltby hears from Lawson that he's going to go outside and fight it out, literally. That's quoted by Maltby. That's the last month they ever heard. Yep. Uh, apparently, again, stories are there's no way to confirm this uh, is that Lawson runs out with two pistols, you know, just guns a like some sort of 1940s Rambo. Or uh, <laughs> yep. say he just went out with the regular attack that with the men that were left and grabbed whatever gun he could uh, and was just gunned down with the rest of them. Uh, his body is later found, riddled with bullets. His legs are broken. They think he bled to death from again. The details might be a little too much for the podcast, but uh,
0: oh, you can go right ahead. I on he, the uh, podcast, I talked about the Saint Stephen's Massacre. Oh yeah, right? well we yeah. can get to that. But, yeah,
1: uh, yeah, I know. I, I did listen to that, but uh, it's it's just because this is how he's found, right? Uh, by, by Uriah, Uriah Late, who who is with the Winnipeg Grenadiers, he Company, or just down the road. They hold. He finds. Sorry, he finds Lawson's body after. And that's how um, this is how they know kind of they get an idea of what happened. Some witnessed it from a distance, uh, but those who are in the immediate area are all killed. Um, So this is kind of how they piece it together. Uh, So they find Lawson's body. He's actually given a proper burial, which was rare for the defenders of Hong Kong by the Japanese. He's given a full honored burial he's given a grave marker in japanese
0: they, well it's true that i i had come across a quote apparently from one of the japanese who witnessed the event and they did say he was courageous or something i found it kind of peculiar that they had yeah it they,
1: again it's details are kind of sparse yeah excuse me because of a whole number of factors uh but that's recorded later on when the war crimes trials are going on they get a hand a few of the regimental commanders uh, and are like, okay, you got to show us where all this stuff happened. They're very cooperative, actually. Again, very surprising in numerous ways, because they want to be like, where did all these massacres happen, which we can talk about. But uh, anyway, so that's part of it, is is Lawson's death. And that's how it's noted. And there's pictures, literally, of the the grave marker. Uh, Anyway, for Lawson, yeah, they they basically had respect for him for going down like that, I guess. Um, It's very unclear because, and I forgot to mention this earlier, the Japanese division, 38th division, excuse me, that is fighting at Hong Kong, was later largely wiped out on Guadalcanal. Uh, so their records are destroyed. The Americans have quite a few of them. That's how they, again, learn some of these details after the war, the translations and these kinds of things. Uh, but uh, it's an interesting part, right? Because so many of this history is, is we'll never just know because of the two sides, right? And how history is recorded and yeah. who dies and when. Uh, anyway, so that's what happens. Uh, At the Gap with Lawson, D Company holds out for a couple of days. They're in these kind of sheltery kind of buildings. They're not designed by the military, and they're not designed to take any fire whatsoever. But the position is well-stocked with Bren guns and lots of ammunition. And when I'm talking Hong Kong level, I'm talking this is a lot for even Hong Kong. Like millions of rounds. Like it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Do a number on the Japanese attacking at the Gap. They last for days and days. They cause a huge number of Japanese casualties. Uh, until eventually, you know, just attritional causes a lot of deaths and wounded inside these shelters. Uh, again, we know this because of uh, the chaplain Uriah Late, who's recording all of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, and he's trying to do his best um, to care for the wounded and, and the dying uh, and everything. This just goes on and on for days until the Japanese bring up, uh, I believe it's a two inch gun or something equivalent, and literally blow the door in. That's when they surrender. And, and, and late is telling them as this is happening to the wounded, like, you better stand up now. Get up. Like, I don't care. You have to get up because they'll kill you. And that's, that is, again, none of this is confirmed, but that is what has been said to happen. Those, the walk, those who could not walk out on their own out of these shelters were murdered were killed. Oh, right, as we've
0: seen in Malaya and other places, yeah, you know?
1: yeah. This is also a story that repeats itself later, um, numerous times, but anyway, so that's what's going on. at that point, they're basically that position falls to the uh, to the Japanese, and then they can slowly take the advance west. Um, so after that happens, like you already mentioned, they try to start the British garrison, numerous battalions and companies, and basically whatever they can put together. Are sent at the gap um, to try and take it back. They come nowhere close. Yeah. And companies again. I've read the accounts. Not even platoons, almost at certain points, from the East Command, which is under the command of uh, Brigadier Cedric Wallace, who's a British Indian Army officer. He was in command of I can't remember which one. One of the Indian uh, regiments, from battalions until he gets elevated to command. Uh, he's sending Canadians, uh, whatever he can, basically. To try and take it back. It fails every time. They don't even come close ever. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's a, there is some success, like some small, very local success in some of these attacks. Like, they'll, there's that account I read of them ambushing a Japanese pack train, basically, and they just wipe it out of artillery. Yeah. Uh, But that's like a small drop in the bucket, right? These are, these are companies facing regiments. Like, it's, it's just, it's not good. The numbers are not good. Uh, So that fighting goes on for quite a while. Uh, There's the Repulse Bay fighting at the hotel there. That goes on for quite a while as well, a couple of days. Canadians are sent there as reinforcements. That's on the southern coast. The same sort of story. They try to hold on as best they can. They repulse a couple of counterattacks. But eventually they have to abandon the position. There's claims of Canadian drunkenness, which only one story has been confirmed uh, of Canadian drunkenness at Repulse Bay was actually a private um, from the Royal Rifles, one of the Canadian battalions. Uh, Actually, he passes out drunk, I think, in the kitchen of the hotel, something like that, maybe one of the walk-in freezers. I can't remember. He passed maybe in the basement. He passes out drunk. The civilians are like, he's passed out in a uniform. They'll kill him. They switch him out uh, into civilian clothes. And actually, he gets out first. He's one of the Canadians to first get out of Hong Kong. He's
0: repatriated as a civilian. <laughs> I've never heard this. Okay. Wow.
1: Yeah. I forget his name off the top of my head. I um, should have looked that one up. I forget some of the names because there's just so, like you said, there's so much going on here. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's gotta be, this is one of those stories I love doing digital, as you know, but of course, it's gotta be written down <laughs> to fully understand some of these details or like prepared, you know, blow by blow scripts. Right. Cause there's just so much going on. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So he's repatriated. Gets no criminal charges against him for basically deserting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, because there's enough
1: blood, right, connected to Hong Kong. Why, you know, charge for deserting when he's just a drunken idiot who just got lucky. Uh, So anyway, so Repulse Bay quickly falls as well. They have to abandon the civilians yet again. Some stories of massacres. Again, there's so many massacres in this battle. It's so hard to keep track of. Again, a lot of them are unsubstantiated. They're found later. Um, all kinds of stories of POWs being taken by the Japanese at this part of the island and just literally marching them off cliffs. Uh, yeah. at the point of the net. Um,
0: Particularly the Indians, from what I've read.
1: Indians, yeah. Uh, that happens to a few Canadians at Repulse Bay. Um, again, the stories are sketchy and details are unclear. Some survived this um, somehow. And this is how they can relate these stories later. But again, details are unclear. Um, so that that's going on. So I'll move so we can pivot to the eastern side of the island. So the Eastern Brigade had been trying to stop um, the Japanese advance further up from what is still known as the Stanley Peninsula. Um, and you talked about St. Stephen's. That's where that is. It's a still is. A, uh, I think it's a preparatory college now. Um, oh, yeah. School. It's a school. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so they're trying to slow the advance in the numerous hills. Uh, this is where the battle turns into this attack, counterattack, 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 counterattack. Mm-hmm. Take a hilltop. Garrison takes a hilltop. The Japanese counterattack, push them off because they don't have enough ammunition and men, uh, water because it's very hot at Hong Kong. Very, very hot. And he stressed this. Multiple times in our half an hour interview, <laughs> he made me like seal that in my brain. Like, he's like, You have to tell everyone that the water is so crucially important, particularly at Hong Kong um, because of the conditions. Uh, it's George McDonnell. We get to talk to him and admit, but uh, he was so insistent. And I'm like, I will tell people from now on, water is so key in fighting. Uh, just because of the conditions, right? Uh, so anyway, so that's one of the reasons that the garrison can't hold these hills like Violet Hill. Sorry, I'm just looking at the map. Sugarloaf Hill. Uh, this battle, The story just basically repeats itself over and over and over again until they're slowly just pushed back where they can no longer repulse the Japanese um, from taking the hills. So this goes on for a couple of days, back and forth. Uh, where they finally really retreat, the whole brigade, the headquarters, the staff, as many troops as they can get back, really pull back onto the peninsula itself, set up basically a perimeter trying to keep the Japanese out. And then they're pushed back from these positions, which includes St. Stephen's. And that's when the massacre happens. Because the college and the main one of the main buildings, I think the gym, is used, the gymnasium, sorry for international viewers, <laughs> is used as a hospital, right? Yeah. The school and a good number of the outbuildings, it's not as big as it is now, pretty much goes for all of Hong Kong. I'm telling this story, is uh, they push back the defenders, right? So this hospital is basically stuck out behind Japanese lines. And they come in, and you, you detailed this already in your episode, but it's just a straight up massacre. They bayonet wounded men in their bed. They take the nurses into separate rooms and gang rape them and then murder some of them, just continue to rape them for days. They force men into small rooms. They take them out, do mock executions. Some are real. This just goes on for day, like for, I don't know, a day, it was a day and a half of just murder and raping and all brutality, basically. They just, the commanders of the Japanese just basically let this go on for an extended period of time and then eventually step in and say this is enough but this is almost it's not a doctrine by any means but it seems built in in a sense like it's just well we let the you know rank and file murder and rape and pillage
0: and then japanese military is a very complex beast and there's a lot of cogs (laughs) in there that allow for these situations to happen
1: yeah i'm no expert in the japanese military whatsoever but it's just it's an observation from hong kong it's just years of studying this thing, it's just, this is what they do. Like they just massacre and murder. And then eventually the commanders are like, okay, that's enough. And then it stops. So it's just, it's, it's, yeah, like you said, so many moving parts, complicated, not an expert in that. I just read the reports and everything that's happened places like St. Stephen's Um, and then it's kind of one of the massacres that's come to mark the battle and is extremely well known. It's been documented in pretty much every documentary on the battle It's uh, it's brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, The amount of people that are killed and and raped there is
0: just civilians, doctors, and nurses. Doctors,
1: nurses, everybody. It's just brutal and awful, and one of the just symbols of Japanese brutality in the Second World War. Uh, So, with that being said, now that this position, these high ground, has been taken by the Japanese, basically the East Brigade is on its last legs they've pulled back to the Stanley. Well, it's called Stanley Fort, the jail. It's all kind of one complex. Mm-hmm. That's the command position. Now, that's literally the front line and the command position. Like it, everything's mixed together and this mess, um, units are not really separate anymore. They are, you know, paper and tactically so, but like the lines are tight. So as I had already mentioned before, and this is one of the things that, um, Wallace, who we talked about before, commander of East Brigade, is is criticized for, is he orders a counterattack Christmas Day, yeah. to take the that had just fallen. Like I said before, these attacks and counterattacks have been going on and on and on. They are necessary. You have to take the high ground to hold Hong Kong. You, you know, if you don't hold it, you don't hold the island. Uh, so, but at this point, Christmas Day, the utility of these things is outstripped have the strategic situation. They're literally backs to the wall, backs to the sea, basically. No, Dunkirk is coming here. Uh, he orders a counterattack. Um, and it's given to D Company of the Royal Rifles Canada. And one of the company, sorry, one of the platoons has had all the officers wiped out. So Sergeant George McDonnell, who's still with us, amazing guy, you know, sharp as attack, has an amazing post-war career in uh, government and business. Uh, I'm very thankful for him. I have spoken with him. He wrote a book on his experiences. Uh, it's an amazing book. You can read it if you can. Uh, He leads one of the platoons in this attack. Uh, Initially, it works. They push the Japanese back. They just come at them with this last ounce of strength and ferocity and push them back from the high ground, albeit only for half an hour, because the Japanese are masters of the island at this point. They can just throw a battalion against a company, against a platoon, and they do. Um, and then the numbers and casualties start piling up, and then they push back. Get pushed back again, and again. The story just continues on. And then the word, and then then surrender uh, is ordered by uh, by uh, He orders the surrender. Uh, it doesn't reach uh, the Eastern Brigade as quickly as it does the West because the West Brigade, like I said, had been slowly pushed back after the gap, just holding positions, falling back, holding positions, falling back, because that's where Malby is. He's on the west side of the island. And what in the command bunker, basically underground. Um, and he's left, and he he's cut off basically from the East Brigade. They don't yeah. know what's going on out there. East Brigade still thinks the battles going on after the surrender takes place. Like they're still fighting, um, you know, pot shots and that kind of thing., uh, but eventually they get the message and then they surrender. Uh, so and then 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 that happens in the West as well. There's some wanting to resist, some that just try to slip away. A couple of people get out. Very few stories, those are kind of heralded as this sort of yeah, they continue the resistance, they get out. There's a handful, it's hardly anyone gets out of this, gets off the island because of just conditions, right? A little most of these boats have been destroyed by the British to keep them in Japanese hands. So what are you gonna do? There's nowhere to go. So they literally surrender, particularly people of your Europe, European descent, right? You're gonna stick out, you can't blend in with the population. Yeah they're going to see you they're going to know Uh, so anyway so and then that starts nearly four years of brutal brutal captivity um, for the garrison
0: yeah and it's forever known as black christmas the day of surrender infamous christmas day
1: so it's for those those families of of, of those men uh, christmas has always been tainted in that way right this is when the four years yeah of brutality begins and it still still has an impact I talk to people children of some of these veterans and it's emotionally charged that uh, should be
0: yeah i don't uh, i never went into it uh, on the kings and generals podcast i never talked about it but uh, on a minor kind of under budget episode of my own youtube channel i did go into the pow years and the ocu- occupational years and it it was terrible for hong kong oh my god
1: yeah so i can just do that real quick because i didn't want to talk about kind of some post-war stuff. Um, so they're initially all kept on Hong Kong. So you have uh, North Point Camp on the north point of the island is used as a, uh, as a uh, POW camp. It's tiny. They cram thousands in. Disease quickly takes hold as these things happen in, in subtropical climates, right? Uh, diseases run rampant, cholera, diphtheria. Malnutrition takes a huge toll very quickly because they don't really feed them. There's no sanitation whatsoever. No medical supplies. The Royal Army Medical Corps does amazing work during the battle and after for years. They're working with literally nothing at certain points. Like they are again, it's more to go. There's too much detail going into now, but the things that they're able to do and the the lengths that some of these doctors go to, like it's not collaboration in that sense because they're just trying to save these guys' lives. But the way that they're able to. Try they try to manipulate and beg and borrow and steal as much as they can. And the Japanese guards they they try. Some of them are successful, some not so much. Uh, they try to turn the brutality of the Japanese army on its head by saying like to the one of the commanders at one of the camps. It's it, you're going all these guys are going to die on your watch, and the commanders aren't going to like this. So they allow um, some uh, diphtheria uh, vaccinations into the camp, and it stops an outbreak. I think that's in forty three. Again, I can't remember the dates, but these are going on and on. This goes on until liberation. Um, and then there's a camp on the mainland that was uh, initially built uh, for the army as well at Cham Shui Po, which is a district in Hong Kong still today. Uh, that's Canadians are held there for an extended period of time. Same story too small, too many people. Disease, malnutrition, uh, beatings on the regular, um, the Japanese guards. And some of the Korean guards, which are you know conscripted into Japanese army service, they are said to be some of the worst um, because they're for various reasons uh, trying to show off, I guess, You're trying to be as brutal as the Japanese so they don't get the attention. I don't know. Uh, and the one particular story that is quite shocking to a lot of people um, with POW years is, is the story of Ken Inouye. He's a Canadian-born. Canadian-born citizen of Japanese ancestry, his parents were born in Japan, emigrated to Canada. He's from Kamloops, British Columbia. He he was exposed to racism his entire life um, because he would tell the POWs his life story. Like, I was treated poorly, now it's your turn, kind of thing. That happens frequently. He tells them everything because he speaks perfect English, right? He's Canadian-born, right? Just like they are, no different, right? Just different ethnicity. So he tells them all this, and he's one of the most brutal guards. He beats many men to death. They don't even know how many he actually beat to death. Um, He would just you know, summary beatings for no reason. Uh, To the Canadians, he was called the Kamloops kid because that's where he was from. The Brits called him slap happy because he would just beat anyone for any reason. And they didn't know about Kamloops, so they're not going to call him that. (laughs) So he's. this goes on and on and on, um, the entire war. He's actually captured after the fact, um, and he's brought to trial. Uh, they try to get the Canadian government, this is uh, maybe something we can talk about briefly, but they don't really launch any war crimes trials, I mean, period. Even in Europe, they're very limited, but particularly in Hong Kong, they're happy to let the British take care of it except for uh, annoy, you know, <laughs> what do we do with this guy? Canadian citizen who had been beating our troops, had been murdering them.
0: It's an interesting situation. I've, I've never heard of this one myself, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Uh, it, it, they try to initially get him for war crimes. Under Canadian law and the international law that's developing after the war, especially, you can't try one of your own people for war crimes against your own country. Hmm. What do they get him on? Treason. Because he voluntarily joined the Japanese Imperial Army.
0: Okay. Hmm.
1: And they hang him in Hong Kong in 1948, I believe. He is executed for his crimes. Uh, and that's one of the few real... There is Canadian involvement in the war crime trials that take place in Hong Kong, but the Canadian government is not driving any of this, except for Hanoi. It's one of the few Canadian you know trials. Just yeah. like in Europe, there's very few Canadian-driven, Canadian this is one of them. Hmm. And it's a complicated, like, again, there are so many layers of complication to this. You have a Canadian born Japanese soldier who's beating Canadians for the racism and terrible treatment he receives as a child. And then crosses the Pacific and is doing it to other people in Hong Kong.
0: Not knowing his story, but knowing the Japanese military, which is a culture of abuse within. Mm-hmm. If he was, if he had any attribute that showed him to be external, canadian aspect of it Mm -hmm. he would have been abused by all of his colleagues and he would have looked for anyone who's lower than him and especially with the privates or anyone who was quite low on the totem pole so to say yeah they usually went after civilians or pow's so it looks like one of those stories
1: yeah his brutality is marked by pretty much every account anyone who's in a him i mean i'm not even talking the canadians brits as well because i've read numerous journals and you know that were illegally kept at the time and letters and things that just always mentioning this guy. Brutally was, and he would just, I don't know, it's complicated again. He would seem to almost, he would enjoy doing it in that way hmm. them and then trying to still be buddy, buddy with the Canadians, yeah. be with them. you know, it's just so complicated and it's awful. And like so many of these stories are you know, it's just brutal. So another area I do want to talk about real quickly in the POW experience is not uh, starting in 1943 like drafts of men from POW camps are chosen to go to Japan. Yes, of course. As uh, slave labor. Not period, (laughs) just slave labor. Uh, They're put in what's known as now the hell ships. Lots of great work has been done on this. That's why I didn't really touch on my dissertation because I didn't need to. One of the few areas of Hong Kong that's been done well and scholarly and all of that good stuff. And popularly, all of it's good stuff. Uh, The conditions are absolutely brutal. A good number of them are sunk by the Americans because they don't know. They just think it's a Japanese ship because the Japanese don't mark them in any way. Uh, The conditions are brutal. People are getting sick and dying on these ships because they're just locked in the holds. Right? There's nothing anyone can do. A good chunk of them make it to Japan. Working in uh, rail yards, some of them survive because of that, because they steal food that's fallen off trains just to keep them alive. Uh, They work in rail yards, uh, mines. That's one of the more particularly dangerous ones just because of the conditions. Um, Or does it need to beat them because the mine would kill them for them? Uh, where else do they work? Mines, factories, um, particularly in the greater Tokyo area that is today, was Massive City back then as well. There are stories of, uh, of POWs working with Japanese civilians in these factories, you know, after the bombings. And, and they would come into work and they would they were picking up rudimentary Japanese and be like, yeah, you know, my family was killed last night in a bombing run. Um, like they would, and then still go into work and the, you know, Canadians, Brits are working next to them. One story that is not very well known, and another one that I promised George McDonnell that I would tell as long as I could, is he was working in the Yokohama shipyard, which is still a shipyard today. It's still a major part of of Tokyo Tokyo Bay, Tokyo Harbor. Uh, They were building ships just for the Japanese uh, shipping, uh, commercially shipping, and the military. Uh, They would sabotage whenever they could. Uh, one of the easiest ones was uh, messing with the rivets. I don't fully understand the science behind it, but they would take it to a point I think they would heat it too much. And then it would eventually just slowly shrink or something. And then the ship would just break apart. Like that was uh, a, they yeah. would do, they would try to sabotage as much as they could. Uh, one of the biggest ones that they did, and why it's not so well known is because nobody wanted to talk about it on purpose is they set um, time release bombs. I mean, you're not going you know, to see what me doing the quotations in the, in the podcast, but they were just time-release fires, basically, uh, when everyone was gone. So they couldn't blame anybody. Uh, in the area where all the blueprints are held, and because George McDonnell told me about it, he's like, there's no backups, right? This is, not, this is not the digital age. Once those are gone.
0: Yeah, that's significant. Yeah. What do you do?
1: They burned that building to the ground. And they tried, the Japanese tried to out whoever did it, and none of them broke. Also because none of them knew anything. It was like three or four men knew about this. And they kept it quiet for years. So nobody would get blamed until after the war, right? And they're like, George McNey told me about this. He was like, he didn't, he wasn't told for that reason, but he knew who did it, sort of. He had his susp- suspicions. And after the war, he's like, was that you? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't have his name. I should have written this down before we started, but I didn't. But he's just like, yeah, it was me. Because <laughs> like it's, it's true. And, and what Mr. McDonnell pointed out is they shut down Yokohama Shipyard when the American you know, Army, Air Force, and Navy couldn't. right Years of bombing for whatever it is, 18 months, couldn't do it. They did it in like two days. And it was out of a commission for a long time. And this is when you know Japan is, this is getting later in the war, right? This is in 44, I believe. And they're just running out of shipping because Americans are sinking so much of it. So this is a big impact. And, and I mean,
0: the, the, they can't adequately build their wartime economy. Yeah. Just It didn't, but they didn't, they didn't have the real industry to do anything.
1: Yeah. No, like, I mean, the, when they're talking about these ships being built, like they would build them, they're building like one at a time. Yeah. So they, I mean, they're using slave labor. They're, you know, their enemy. <laughs> it's not going to go well. <laughs> so that is not a recipe for success
0: No. Uh,
1: without sabotage. I mean, the kinds of stories of sabotage and, Things being done on purpose, you know, or like, oops, you know, oops, I didn't mean to do so, you know, just like small little like dropping equipment and losing drills and things like that, and rivets falling out and all of that. So why that story is important, particularly because, and I do feel this, the Battle of Hong Kong is overshadowed by the suffering of the POWs, and a lot of them are not happy, who are now, most of them have all passed, most of them, there's only five Canadians left alive, four. Less, you know, than you can count on one hand, pretty much, uh, left alive. Uh, who experienced this? They, and for years, they were tired of being seen as victims, it, and also people who weren't fighting anymore. They were still fighting. It just wasn't on a Pacific island or against the Nazis. They're fighting the Japanese in any way that they can. You know, they have to balance trying to stay alive with what doing is? acts of sabotage, and they do carry them out, and they carry them out for years, and they keep going. And that's just one thing I promised, uh, Mr. McDonnell that I would continue to tell, that they kept fighting. Uh, they didn't want to be victims. They wanted to keep fighting. And they were soldiers of a victorious army. And it's true, right? We don't think about POWs that way. Yeah. But they, Canada won just along with Britain, the United States, and China, right? They won. And they were part of that army.
0: I know there was a lot of controversy when the Canadian-made documentary came out. I think it was 1992. Yeah. That- Featured the it, yeah, it's very controversial, but uh, dating myself, but that's kind of you know something I saw when I was much younger. That's what got me into yeah. World War Two, and that was something that was high. I think I, I think it was presented to us in school. If I'm not, it was. Sake. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, talking about the valor and the horror. Valor. No, yeah.
1: Talking about that because there's three episodes: uh, bomber command, harmony, and Hong Kong. Yeah. The, who are obviously way more controversial, just pure numbers alone, right? There's a lot more bomber command veterans than there were Hong Kong and Germany. Oh, yeah. But the claims made in all three episodes are absolutely ridiculous. They're poorly researched. You can put this in the podcast. I don't
0: care. <laughs> it's already there. It's, it's well known. It's actually, uh, I think even oh, if awful. you went on, a, if you went on Wikipedia, it would actually say that.
1: It's awful. Of it's, it's terrible. There's no research into it. Uh, actually, right. Where we were talking earlier about the gin drinkers line saying like getting it confused as a walkway. Yeah, they do that. They get a helicopter and they're like, oh, there's the gin drinkers line. Everyone goes, that's a walking path. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Because we do it and it's dusty. Like, there's your answer that you didn't even bother to look. Yeah. And again, another part of why the Val and the Horror is awful, because some people still do defend it and think it's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, is, and one thing we didn't talk about uh, was John Osborne, the only Victoria Cross winner of the battle. hmm he, he wins the Victoria Cross, for basically he sacrifices his life for his man. He jumps on a grenade, literally, yep. to protect them uh, at Mount Butler. Uh, they get the date of his death wrong.
0: <laughs> God, yeah, of course they it would.
1: It, it's oh, like, even back then, I you know, I keep saying that this is 1992. This is also still not the digital age yet.
0: But it's, I mean, in 1992, you, yeah, I wouldn't. I'm it not was easy to find
1: back then. It's in the official history, which was at every library in the country. Yeah. still is. You could could just go ask a librarian and they would tell you where to find the information. Also, his citation was easily readily available as well. No different for the Victoria cross. It's a Victoria cross. This isn't, you know, you know, thumbs up sticker in kindergarten here. This this is a big deal. I mean, they just like, they just didn't care. They just wanted to tell a story and uh, fit their narrative. You know, the Brits are terrible and so are generals and we hate them and so should you kind of thing.
0: I mean, that narrative is very strongly felt in that. I think it, pretty much influenced my entire generation as far as who who had seen the video or knew anything about it.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, that's kind of one of the things I argued in the dissertation is the valor and the horror is this culmination of this pattern, right? Mm. Hong Kong, vets, I've, in the Hong Kong story. Why I wanted to talk about the post-war is it comes in, you know, ebbs and flows, right? There's so much attention to it and then it drops off and then something else happens and then it drops off. Like there's an inquiry done in 1942 about all of this. Um, which is a whole complicated thing (laughs) like everything else in this story. Uh, Basically the Supreme court justice uh, Lyman Duff finds the government not at fault for anything. You know, the government opposition doesn't like that. It turns into a whole row charges are filed and then summarily dropped and it's a political infight in in parliament for six months. And then, you know, attention moves to something else. DAP happened six months later. Right. So attention moves on in 1948, uh, I'm not, I can't remember if you talked about this in the other podcast, but maltby releases his his report is released about the fighting in Hong Kong. Uh, it's actually censored, is the technical term. The initial draft blames the Canadians even more than the draft. Sorry, the draft the draft that is released to the public in All 1940. Right. Oh yeah, there's claims of drunkenness uh, that they were drunk and that's what we lost, um, particularly in the east. Um, all these kinds of things. They were insubordinate, drunk, didn't know what they were doing. Most of that is taken out um, by C.P. Stacey, who's the official historian uh, of the Canadian Army. He tells them, this is not true. You cannot substantiate any of this. Take it out. Uh, And they eventually do. But even though the, the report that is released is still not glowing to the Canadians in any respect. So that causes a whole row. And there's another, there's a Senate investigation done those of you Canadian know about Canadian politics. The Senate basically has no power; they're yeah. basically mark um, on things, uh, so no one really listens to it. But there is still fighting in the parliament because the Liberals and the Conservatives, like today, are always fighting. <laughs> yeah,
0: fight. yeah.
1: Hong Kong was one of those things, uh, and then Hong Kong kind of dies off in in popular Canadian mind for a while. Those who know the veterans obviously are are concerned about this. Their family members. Uh, until like you said 1992 in the valor and the horror because hong kong is the first episode and it's just like it's like a dividing point it's like a lightning strike and just sets the narrative of hong kong that the canadians were tricked they were cannon fodder for the brits you know these colonel blimp idiots who just want to send colonials to die and, and that is true and i'm Still, people are still thinking that the Valor and the Horror presentation of events is 100% true, because that's what the filmmakers literally claim at the beginning of the episode. They literally claim all of the things that are coming are true and are backed up by evidence. Hardly any of them are. (laughs) There's an investigation done into the Valor and the Horror in three places. Um, Canadian um, CRTC, that regulates Canadian uh, telecommunications, does an investigation, it, it does next to nothing. CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, does their own because they paid for and broadcast it. They find it's not to journalistic standards. Things are made up, literally. Like, they literally claim people said things that they never did because they turned over their interview transcripts. There's claims that they're saying, you know, you know soldier. Well, one of the examples is uh, Sergeant John Payne, who was one of those executed after trying to escape. Mm-hmm. They claim he says things that he could never possibly have said because he died. Does he say such things? There's one letter that he sent that got out to his family. It's in the Canadian War Museum. There's no words of anything of what they claim he says other than the contents of the letter. Uh, and this goes on. They do that for one of the nursing sisters. They put words in her mouth as well. Um, all these kinds of claims. And there's no substantiated, there's no evidence at all to support any of it. Uh, but one good thing and I will say uh, before I want to move on to the kind of the last thing I want to talk about is it launches a kind of a counter know, military counterattack academically speaking and beyond because and I think and I am part of this trend and, and standing on the shoulders of the people who did this first is they're like, hold on a second, <laughs> let's actually look at the documents and see what's going on. So they try to understand like we already discussed, the context of what Britain is trying to do with Hong Kong what the Canadians are trying to do, why they okay a reinforcement when Prime Minister Mackenzie King doesn't want Canadian soldiers involved in anything. Why I have a sudden is he's saying, oh yeah, sure, you can take two battalions to the other side of the planet, no problem. Trying to understand what's going on there, right? There's Canadian backlash at home for Canadian soldiers not fighting in North Africa at the time, whereas you know the New Zealanders and the Australians, even the Indian Army, South Africans are fighting there. Where are we? You know, We're just yeah. chilling and doing nothing. They weren't doing nothing, but, you know, that's the popular perception. So King has to fight against that, and he doesn't want to get involved, but he also doesn't want to lose, you know, the English part of the country in the next election. So he's always trying to balance things. Like, things like that are not mentioned in the documentaries. They're not mentioned in the books from this time of Hong Kong. There's very few, but The Valor and the Horror was so popular and and still is in so many ways. Like, millions of people watch this thing in Canada.
0: If you look millions up a documentary in Hong Kong, it'll be the first one, I'm sure. you'll. Find oh, it was
1: 100% the first one. It's the first most people i ever heard about the battle um,
0: yeah.
1: at all. And millions watched it. And even, in this is the early 90s. If millions of Canadians today are watching something, that's big. Millions were watching this in the early 90s. Like, that is something we just don't think about when it comes to this battle, what that means. Like, I know the valor and the horror has influenced people's thinking about that because they'll literally come up to me when they find out who I am and what I do and they're like, Oh yeah, the British, they were terrible. Right. They just wanted the Canadians to die. And I went, no, <laughs> you, you watched *The all in the horror, didn't you? Uh, anyway, so that, that's kind of what I've been working against. It's a big uphill climb. I try to do the best I can. I hope to write a book on it. We'll see. Um, it's a difficult story to tell as I already mentioned, as you know, Greg, uh, yeah. it's easy. Uh, particularly, what angle to take and how to go about it. It's going to take some time and thinking, uh, and how I want to present this. But it, it, it is there is a backlash against these claims uh, and all of this sort of, this kind of the lions led by donkeys sort of school that has. Yeah,
0: that's a good way look at it. Yeah. Military history, and
1: I'm sure a lot of your viewers know what that means. If you don't, just Google it; it'll come right up. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's definitely one of the things. Uh, that is definitely influencing the legacy and even just our basic understanding of what happens in the battle because everything is seen through that lens of they just wanted to kill Canadians because they did not want Brits to die or they just wanted to hold a colony because they're evil imperialists
0: oh, well, there are so know. many different <laughs> rationales for the what happened but or- there's just
1: yeah you got to understand I don't know it's, it's that onion principle there are so many layers here that
0: the it's idea a, they would rather surrender it to the Japanese than allow the Chinese to fight for it and then lose to the Japanese was another. That's story. part of it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that was part of it as well. They didn't want it to surrender because they didn't want China to take it because they expect, they never expected to lose to Japan, like the war overall. But like even if they take Hong Kong, a brutal, brutal battle, which is why oh, they'll happened.
0: get it back. Yeah, after the war, they'll is get done, it back and, at yeah. the
1: peace agreements. Like we have the United because they that was the plan, right? If
0: we're Securing war, the empire was Churchill's first. Yeah. It was one
1: of his primary goals yeah. with war in the East. Um, again, there's whole debates whether he cared about the war in the East really beyond, you know, cursory glance. Again, another complicated topic that I'm not going to touch because I'm not an expert on Churchill and don't ever claim to be. Oh god, yeah. It, it, it's a layer to it, right? These things are happening, you know, co-currently. You can't just say, oh, it's one thing or it's
0: this or it's that. I'm like, Oh, it's a network of, it's a spider web. You've got, it's a web.
1: Yeah. You've got yeah. webs of events and people. It's not one person pulling levers here. It's, yeah. it, it's
0: if you look up Hong Kong, there's a lot of reports. Oh, the only purpose of Hong Kong is just a delaying action to buy more time for Singapore to get reinforcements or other places. And it's not important. And yeah, there's all sorts yeah. of different reports. Yeah,
1: yeah that was Part of it, I mean, Singapore is the thing I didn't want to talk about because it gets enough attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: it's, it's the crown. It gets symbol. all the attention.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, for reasons. Yes, I understand. But we'll also, and something I forgot to mention, someone uh, there was a study done where actually the defenders of Hong Kong were more effective than the defenders of Singapore. If you do the number of casualties incurred on the Japanese, the, the troops on the ground in Hong Kong are causing more casualties than troops in Singapore. Also, another thing I forgot to mention, but of all these major battles that are happening in the early part of, you know, Yamamoto's, you know, I'll run wild for six months period, I guess you can call it. Hong Kong is the only garrison that is outnumbered. Every other place, they outnumber... The
0: Japanese are always outnumbered, it's true.
1: Malaya huh. outnumber them. Philippines, yeah. outnumber them by a lot. And even in Singapore itself, outnumber them by a lot. Well, it's,
0: it's Yamashita's bluff, as he would have called it.
1: Yeah, whereas Hong Kong, they outnumber themselves. So, was it three to one, four to one? The other ones, it did... The odds are flipped in every other battle. So, also lost in the narrative is
0: I've they, never even thought about that once. Oh yeah, it's,
1: it's it's important because, like I said, it's it's how we understand these things, right? It's it, it's an under it's an under equipped, colony that shouldn't have held out for more than a couple of days, but they dragged it out for seventeen. Best they could, they could have dragged it out longer with a lot more casualties. But it's it, it's just something to think about in that sense, right? They're outnumbered, literally. In every area. And I didn't even fifth call them this part, right? Where these people are literally sometimes coerced, paid by the Japanese to help them. You know, tell me where the gun pit is or I'll kill you.
0: Was it you the know? Hong Kong volunteer force that was doing some of this, the fifth colonists, or was it just civilians? Well, no, they don't know. I did a, I I did a okay.
1: paper on this um, a couple of years ago, trying to understand all this. And it's another part I'm like, we don't know enough. And we need to, someone needs to like sit and look at this, like just focus on this part. I
0: find it's it like, interesting because there's such a large guerrilla movement once they've been taken out, that goes on for right. years. So Yeah, but
1: that's completely separate, but not, again, the link's are clear um, between the guerrilla actions that take place and also this fifth column is a lot of them were literally coerced because Hong Kong's full of Chinese refugees,
0: right? Yeah, of course,
1: yeah. It's swollen. Like, that's what some of those POW camps were built to house uh, refugees. Mm. Uh, not that many, uh, but enough. And then by then they just get overwhelmed. They're, they think the Japanese who have people on the ground well before the attack are paying people. Or when the attack begins, be like, either you lead us through this mountain pass or we'll kill you. Like, there's that of that going on. Uh, there's, again, criminal organizations involved. Um, their connections to the nationalist government are unclear. At one point, there is a supposed plot to murder all the white people of the colony by the criminal gangs. It's negotiated to not do that with as much money as they can get their hands on. Um, not talked about. Uh, but they leave the non-white population, let them do what they want. You don't kill, as long as you don't kill the white people. We don't care. That was the deal that was struck. Um, so, how much of this pillaging, and destruction, and, and and rape, and everything, is the criminal gangs and all other elements? People just taking opportunity of the situation is unclear. There's millions of people here, right? And a lot of these stories were never recorded. So, it's it's a complicated topic. But another part of this that I think is misunderstood.
0: You had a, a last point you wanted to make.
1: Yeah, the last point, it, and it's an important one, um, I think, for and it has modern ramifications, particularly in Canada and across, I think, a lot of the Western world today, is how the Canadian POWs, once they had returned to Canada after the war, were treated. Hmm. I will say Canada had one of the better programs, you know, the Veterans Charter, it's quite well known, right? The, the, the veterans were treated well, they were given schooling and everything, and they were given good medical care and all of that. I live
0: beside one of the hospitals that take, yeah, veterans hospital. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, so a lot of them were well taken care of and all of this stuff. And a lot of them were, and I'm not saying that they weren't. The Hong Kong veterans were not treated very well. Hmm. Numerous reasons. Uh, the first one is practical in a sense. They, they didn't understand the medical prof- profession and Veterans Affairs, which is Department of Veterans Affairs, which is set up as part of the Veterans Charter. They don't even understand these illnesses. That a lot of the men come back with. They're tropical diseases. The Canadians are like, what is this?
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: We don't know the long-term ramifications of things like berry berry, which is a vitamin deficiency. The Canadians do not see.
0: Um it's, tropical- very, it's something that Japanese know because they eat so much rice when they're in the war movements. So yeah, yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, like it doesn't the Canadian, well, obviously, a bunch of Canadian, you know, prairie boys are not used to an yeah. easy diet, and that just has effects on your body. But also things like malaria has a long-term impact, can have a long-term impact. that was not understood in Canada at this time. Uh, All kinds of things. There's so many um, diseases that they face with. uh, Heart heart conditions are off the charts for these guys that are just ignored almost. They would die. They would hit 45 and just drop dead. And the families are like, this is clearly the war service that caused this. And the, the Veterans Affairs would say, no, it's not. You know, request, you know, pension denied. Uh, That went on forever and ever. Um, That's an example. Um, Another reason why I think they did this, and I've literally seen the paperwork uh, and accounts in Veterans Affairs and within the Army itself, well, the Department of Defense, because it all had become one uh, after the First World War. But uh, they're calling the POWs like the debris of war. That's a literal quote um, from an administrator uh, saying they're just in the way. They're complainers. Um, They have it pretty good. They should shut up. Um, all this kinds of stuff. They're ignored. They set up a veterans association, which is still going in and it's very small form, but the, the children have ballooned in. We can get to that in a second, but they set that up to fight basically being like, okay, we're on our own here. Literally. Like it's in every individual against department of veterans with on their own. Good luck. Right. They come together and try to be like, we'll pool our resources and try to get benefits. We'll try to increase the pensions. Cause not everyone got a pension right away like I said the heart disease and things like that was thought not connected until a bunch of guys start dropping dead in you know the mid 60s what's going on here? <laughs> they, they, they make them reevaluate the government relooks at this and says what's going on? why is this happening? So that's one of the things things like dental care which were which are still not available to Canadians was given to these guys. This is before you know we have our universal health care system. so these guys are still paying out of pocket for these problems. Uh, they're giving they have all kinds of psychological issues that are literally ignored like literally another report I read um, telling the doctors of Department of Veterans Affairs hospitals to ignore mental health literally ignore it. It's uh, something to do with something with their central nervous system We'll figure it out and we'll fix it. That goes nowhere obviously because it's just not how it works. Uh, alcoholism is rampant. Um, lots of them die from, alcoholism-related diseases later on as well. And it exasperates heart issues. Um, I've heard all kinds of stories from children, just like my father was never the same again. He was not the same person. He never worked full-time again. He couldn't. There's all kinds of stories, because they did a report um, where they asked the veterans, like, how do you feel? Like, what do you think this did to you? And a lot of them were like, I I can't work anymore. I'm so anxious all the time. I can't do anything. And, and that's largely ignored. Um, they're not given full pensions until every, every veteran isn't given a full pension until 1998, maybe even later when there's only, wow. I mean, wow. uh, and, 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 and again, I, like I said earlier, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means. I'm not saying this is just, you know, some sort of vendetta against the Hong Kong veterans, but later on, like I said, the children, like because the veterans, like I said, mostly have passed away. They were becoming older, couldn't run the organization like they like too used to because they had moved from you know fighting for benefits to fighting for commemoration. Uh, the children have taken that over, and they're they're a great organization. And I know some people from it, and they're amazing in the work they still do. They wanted to put it in a memorial, which is in place in Ottawa today. Um, it's I have some video on it on my channel actually because I live in Ottawa and I regularly go visit it for obvious reasons. Uh, there was. Uh, Difficulty in getting this thing built, literally getting the land. The National Capital Commission, which controls these things, the, you know, the, the crown land in Ottawa, uh, gave them a plot of land. They said, OK, no problem. We're not going to pay for any of this. You can have the land. But we want to see the design first. They gave them a design and they said, no, we don't like it. It doesn't match the buildings in the area. And if anyone knows, this is the area down by uh, the, the Rideau Falls, uh, where the, the uh, National Research uh, Council building is, which was built in the 20s, I think. And what used to be, um, whatever the department was in there before, I forget, but it's foreign affairs in that area. These buildings look nothing alike at all. One's built in the 60s, one's built in the 20s. They look nothing alike. There's nothing else there. A couple of embassies down the road that are not Canadian property. And they say it doesn't fit this area. It doesn't fit. It what they wanted. The NCC raised the costs almost triple, and this was a grassroots organization getting you know business donations, members giving hundred bucks, and they said no, you have to redo it. So again, I'm not saying this is some sort of conspiracy here, but if there's a pattern, I'm going to call it out. Right? They're getting called debris of war. They're ignoring their mental health. They're ignoring the you know the alcoholism and all the other heart conditions that doctors are like this is caused by malnutrition this is caused by the diseases they had. You have to do something like ignoring this and them having to fight and claw for any benefit. And then all of a sudden they want to put up one Memorial on a very small patch of land. And they say that it doesn't fit the buildings. Like what? (laughs) Again, it's it's I know it sounds conspiracy theory, but it's just a pattern. And I'm like, why is this still happening? And this is in 2009 when this happened. And it's just,
0: it to me, it's, Maybe it's, it's Hong Kong related and due to geopolitical matters currently ongoing, I guess, maybe it'll raise attention to certain things. But other yeah.
1: That, and, and I guess I can, this can be a good conclusion and something I've looked at in many ways and not just even academically, but talk to people and ask people questions and, and do like live streams and stuff is, is defeat. What does defeat mean in Canada, right? We, we're not a nation that loses wars. We don't lose wars period. Talking about that, whatever that exactly means, what Canada is as a nation, and whatever. I'm not talking about 1812 because I've made that mistake too many times. But uh, Americans and
0: it's my favorite thing to talk about. uh,
1: I I I try to, and it's just like this is. uh, I'm out. Nope. But not worth it. It's like you know, to put your toe in the pool, and you're like, oh, that feels nice, and then you you know, you jump in and you get attacked by a shark or something. It's just like staying away from that. (laughs) So anyway. Uh, but, like, even in the First World War, right, the previous experience, Canada doesn't really lose any battles, right? And then the Canadian Corps, they they're, they took Vimy Ridge. They led the charge in the 100 days. Second World War, we start off with a loss, right? It's true, we yeah. yeah. We don't true. lose, and we don't like to lose. We still don't like to lose. We t- pretend we're all these, you know, polite, and we lose at hockey, and we do lose our minds. Like, we don't like losing, I argue.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's reputation.
1: We're, uh, we have a reputation of success and yeah. everything, which a lot of it isn't true. But Hong Kong doesn't fit that narrative, right? Hong Kong doesn't fit a narrative of victory. It's a defeat, and it's a defeat without purpose, right?
0: It's okay. an ugly war. Yeah. It,
1: well, because this is an example, and this is a natural comparison. Dieppe comes, what, six months later?
0: Oh, God. Yeah. And Dieppe was
1: contemporary it
0: was wise it, when they were withholding information to the public about what was happening to all the yep. kids. Yeah. It's DEP was yeah, really bad.
1: But the is a mess obviously. And it makes no sense when you look at it, but there's work being done and there's the element about, you know, the pinching of the equipment. And even at the time there was yeah, the, yeah. The narrative of, oh, we learned lessons for Normandy. We need to practice for Normandy. It was
0: necessary to learn about every, yes, of course.
1: Which was never true. Um, mm. They did learn lessons. I'm not saying they didn't learn lessons. It wasn't designed to learn lessons. This is in some sort of classroom. This is thrown a division at a defended port. That's a slaughter.
0: An experiment for the worst possible landing, perhaps.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the worst decision ever that we already know is stupid because we studied military history. Even recently, we know this is not going to go well. It's not the reason. But anyway, but the app has been researched and poked and prodded and dug and all of this stuff ever since. Why? Oh, it's got some value here, right? Even if you, it's just, we did learn a little few lessons, like, you know, like put engineers in tanks, like something as simple as that, that has some value. Hong Kong has no value. But I argue we need to step back, think about it differently, right? And an example, and this isn't just me being, you know, like, Hurrah Canada We need to be every amazing In everything we do It's A Canadians fought And died there And bled for this place And they have been Largely just Written out of the narrative And they are A lot of them Took it to their deathbed Being bitter about this Rightfully so But also There are some Amazing Canadian feats there Like Osborne Winning the Victoria Cross Lawson Fighting it out Literally As he said Literally Uh, George McDonnell Who's luckily again Still with us And he's an amazing man. I will never not sing his praises. Leading something as small as that counterattack, but doing it so well when they were called a bunch of drunken idiots, you know, by other people, it's it's something. I mean, the best comparison is Gallipoli, right? With the ANZAC Corps. Sorry, with the ANZAC Corps. Part of that, I've been yelled at before about that. (laughs) It's 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 a good, you know, it's a good comparison, right? It's held up as this unifying national event in those two countries. Mm -hmm. They. Celebrated in a sense. I mean, it's do, a solemn, yeah. right? It's, it's solemn. Hong Kong, we're just like we were in Hong Kong. <laughs> that's the reaction, and I go, that's what I looked at, right? Why? Why is that the way it is?
0: That's
1: yeah, true. It's multi-layered, but it's. I think it's something worth really looking at mm. because it has an impact on how we think about ourselves, how we think about ourselves on the world stage. But also, and this is a hugely important issue, is how we treat our veterans. Yeah. We just had a major war by Canadian standards. A lot of veterans now, again, right? And I would argue they're not being treated very well, especially ones who have problems.
0: Yeah.
1: The comparisons are direct here.
0: An ongoing thing that's politically shuffled into the back room and not talked about.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not, a, I'm pretty partisan. I like to think I'm not saying this is the liberals, the conservatives, whoever. I'm saying every government has done this,
0: you know. Well, when Harper was in power, parties. he was attacked viciously too for it. Yeah. Everyone.
1: Well, I mean, every, I mean, even the Hong Kong vets, right? I'm talking about, like, because this is Second World War on. Like, this isn't just a liberal thing. This isn't just a conservative thing. Mm. Both those parties were doing this when they were in government, right? Like, yeah. push it back. We don't want to talk about it. Didn't matter, you know, if it was, you know, Diefenbaker or Pearson or Trudeau, it didn't matter, or even Mulroney later on. They just hands off. So I, it's just it's again a pattern. If I see a pattern, I'm gonna call it out. And I'm seeing it repeat itself today. And this is why I think it's important to push things like Hong Kong. Yeah, it was a mistake. We know it's a mistake. That's not what this debate is about anymore. People still want to have that fight. And I go, of course it's a mistake, but we only know that now. You can't say you were going to know that in 41. You can't. Yeah. I don't care what you think. You can't say that because that's hindsight. <laughs> it doesn't matter if the writing's on the wall, if so to speak. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. That's, that's not how that works. So it, it, that debate is over. Of course, it was a mistake. I, I think I put that in the first page of my dissertation. Like, of course, it's a mistake. But why is this mistake made? And what impact does this mistake have? And, and I'm grateful for you having me on to kind of talk about this in this way, because I think it's something that needs a re- reaffirming and a re-understanding in how we think about this. Because that documentary that shall not be named <laughs> anymore has warped our understanding and we need to get past that because it doesn't do anybody any good.
0: Well said. Oh, well, if you'd like actually just to end off uh, perhaps telling everybody again where they can find you. Yeah, so
1: I run a, what I like to call a digital history band, uh, brand uh, on the Stay in Canadian Military History. I started on Twitter, <laughs> where I would post daily about Canadian military history events, hence the name. Uh, and I kind of ballooned from there, people wanting more things, me trying to have a little more flexibility digitally and how I wanted to tell Canadian stories. And that's what I, is my main mission, is just keep these stories out there and try to get some benefit from it. And uh, it's working so far. Uh, So, you just as long as you follow that on any of the platforms. I'm on all the major social platforms, uh, except TikTok. I am only one person, I can't do everything. Uh, And I am on, yeah, so the big, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, there's a YouTube channel, uh, which isn't like a daily thing. It's just, that's the name, and I run with it now (laughs) as these things happen. Uh, But I do, it's all Canadian related in some way, shape or form to military history, where I do live streams of authors, historians. Uh, people involved in said events, because I don't just do World Wars, I do as much as I can. Uh, There's small little videos quite a few times, and then I try to work on bigger ones, like bigger events, or really pour time into uh, an event. Like I did one for uh, the Battle of Ortona. That one took some time, and I'm currently working on one for uh, one of the battles in Normandy, the Flays Gap. Uh, and really, you know, putting some resources and time and thought into those. So. I've got a lot of digital offerings, so any support through subscriptions and following is,
0: is amazing, if, if you can. So please, go check his channel and subscribe. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, I hope we can collaborate soon, actually, because uh, I mean, I'm not just working for Kings and Generals. I also have my own YouTube channel and I try to do my most.
1: Yeah, yeah thanks, for, thanks for having me on. Thanks to Kings and Generals for having me on, on the podcast and, and your own channel as well. I'm definitely open to any sort of collaboration and uh, any ideas you may have for projects in the future.
0: All right. Well, until next time, signing off. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Kings and Generals. Hey, and if after all that, you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me.